Hello, I'm John Vidal in Copenhagen. It's Thursday, December the 17th. Today, the UN's Climate Change Summit moves into its final 48 hours. Yesterday saw the talks bogged down completely and countries only making terribly small concessions as world leaders began to fly in. I've got some experience in dealing with these big negotiations, but this is probably the toughest uh, that we've had because they are so complex, involving so many countries. Moreover, we saw riots and demonstrations, we saw great anger, we saw frustrations, we saw the, uh, the civil society, we saw the NGO groups, the charities walking out. We're not very happy. We were excluded from the conference centre. We were not given a clear reason. The reason kept changing when we asked. And what happened when The Guardian's George Monbiot met Boris Johnson? And I'm John Dennis in London. Also in today's show, the meddling prince. More details of Charles's letters to government ministers and lobbying by his charities. We know that Prince Charles has got wide-ranging interests in you know, political issues, whether it's farming or uh, the environment or climate change or you know, house building. And feeding the 5,000 free lunches in Trafalgar Square using food that would otherwise have been thrown away. The answer to the great food waste problem, and it's a global problem, is really simple, and it simply means eating the food rather than chucking it away. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk. First, Bill Overton's got the news headlines. Four and a half thousand British holidaymakers have been left stranded by the collapse of travel company Globespan. The Scottish firm, which flies out of Glasgow, Edinburgh and Aberdeen, went into administration last night with a loss of 800 jobs. The Civil Aviation Authority says they're responsible for bringing about a thousand of those affected home. The talks between British Airways and the union representing cabin crews failed to reach an agreement last night, but will start again today with Chief Executive Willie Walsh taking part. The BA strike is due to start on Tuesday. Oxfam says millions are at risk in East Africa because rains have failed again. The charity believes Kenya, Tanzania, Ethiopia, Somalia and Sudan are suffering the worst drought in 20 years. It reports livestock are dying, cholera is rife and malnutrition is spreading. As more than 100 world leaders begin to arrive in Copenhagen, there's still no sign of an agreement. British Climate Change Secretary Ed Miliband's warned the summit could become a farce. China is reported to believe there's no chance of an operational deal. Today, Prime Minister Gordon Brown will make what his staff call an impassioned plea for progress. The chief medical officer says children under 15 should have an alcohol-free childhood. He says the idea of introducing children to drink at an early age to teach them a sensible attitude isn't supported by the evidence. And he says studies show, in fact, they're more prone to becoming binge drinkers. Now the papers, the Financial Times warns Christmas travellers face more strike pain, stressing the point airport baggage handlers and Eurostar train drivers are both threatening to go on strike over industrial disputes in the run-up to the holidays. Our paper has the story about the Scottish airline Globespan going bust as well. And the independents been hearing from British Airways cabin crew worried by the extent of the strike planned by their union leaders. They think it's too drastic a step and should better have been planned for January to hurt the public less. Three other papers put a medical story on their front pages. The bespoke cancer cure, that's the mail. Cancer care takes giant step forward in the Times. And British team cracks cancer code in the Telegraph. The mail explains drugs could be tailored to individual patients after British scientists decode the DNA of lung and skin cancer cells. And finally, our paper's lead is that Prince Charles faces fresh meddling claims over letters to ministers, while the Telegraph reports public sector workers have been awarded pay rights is nearly three times higher than those in private companies. And both The Telegraph and The Independent have space for a picture of a deer stag in the snow under the caption, Lapland? No, London. There's more news 
More weather and more sport all day at guardian.co.uk. Hi, this is John Vidal, The Guardian's Environment Editor. I'm here at the UN Climate Change Summit in Copenhagen. Well, here we are, and really we're getting to the end game. We're not far from the finishing line. People can see an end, um, and it doesn't look very good. Um, okay, what I've been writing about today is, the, is how the talks are completely deadlocked. Um, Ed Miliband, our climate secretary, is saying uh, is a very, very dangerous situation at the moment. Um, countries are making tiny concessions. They're getting bogged down in the process. They don't want to get down to the substance of it. Um, everybody's blaming everybody. But yesterday started with some high drama. When we got in, 8 o'clock in the morning, massive queues as ever. Um, and then we discovered that the uh, 5 o'clock in the morning, um, the United States had tabled a whole bunch of emotions, put brackets around half the negotiations. This brought the whole thing to a halt. Um, an hour later, Connie Hedegaard, the Danish uh, chair of the host, walked out, or she, 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 she gave up her job. This morning, a letter of resignation was received from Her Excellency Ms. Connie Hedegaard, President of COP15 and CMP5 from the Office of the President. Now, on one level, this was just procedure and quite normal. Heads of state should talk to heads of state. Uh, but a lot of countries said, no, this was all pre-planned. I have to say, The Guardian had uh, had, had preempted this about a week ago. Uh, the rumours then were she was going to have to hand over because she was a little bit too radical and it had to get back into the hands of the north of the rich countries um, and they didn't want Connie in there. But we'll never know that one. His Excellency, Mr. Lars Lecker Rasmussen, the Prime Minister of Denmark, will replace Miss Connie Hedegaard as President of COP15 and CMP5. Ministers are rushing around, having endless ministers. We met, uh, Indian minister had 60 meetings yesterday. Um, the Bolivian delegate had four 40 minutes sleep last night. They're all wandering around punch drunk and frankly it doesn't make for good negotiations. I spoke to the chief negotiator of Bangladesh. Now this is one of the largest, most vulnerable countries in the world. It stands to lose 30% of its land to sea level rise over the next 50, 60 years. I'm Dr. Hassan Mahmoud, Minister of Environment and Forest. And this is the bottom line for Bangladesh. We must not go empty-handed from this conference. That will create a deep frustration among the people of the planet and uh, and that will also create hatred for the political leadership. We would not accept two degree uh, agreement. Uh, we could come to a compromise between two degree and 1.5 one, one degree. The NGOs are, if you like, the eyes and ears of the world. They are the people in most, most contact with the, uh, with the public. They have, there are hundreds of them here and they're colorful, they're loud, they're critical, they're raucous. Um, and now they're being banned. Now, um, the, 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 the UN says this is because the world leaders need the space and things like that, but there's a large group of NGOs who are very, very angry, and they say that they are being muzzled. They're saying that anybody who sticks their head up over the parapet and starts criticizing the UN or, 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 the, or, or these talks is basically getting cut out. I am Andy Atkins, Executive Director of uh, Friends of the Earth, England, Wales and Northern Ireland. We had 90 delegates, all with the right paperwork, um, but we were stopped when we got to the conference centre. Basically the computer said no, someone overnight had said we couldn't come in. We feel that at Friends of the Earth we were one of the strongest voices inside calling for a strong and fair deal. 
one that's consistent with the science and consistent with justice. So if voices like ours are expelled, uh, that actually isn't very good for anybody if we're all after the strongest possible deal that does the job, that prevents runaway climate change. The UN doesn't want any embarrassment when the world leaders come, especially when Obama comes. Um, they're absolutely petrified of an international incident, someone throwing themselves in front. On Friday, there will only be 90 people from civil society, from, if you like, representatives of the world, allowed into this room. Um, and, and, and they are absolutely furious about it. There were walkouts here, um, but outside, um, there was even more going on. And uh, fierce demonstrations, lots of people very, very upset. I couldn't see them because I was stuck in this, this, this ghastly windowless room, uh, but fortunately we did have someone there. My name's Bibi van der Zee. I have been covering the demonstrations out here in um, Copenhagen during the summit for the last two weeks. Yesterday was um, the Reclaim Power demonstration, which was um, where activists announced the intention of getting into the Bella Centre, taking over the space and holding their own people's assembly in the middle of the Bella Centre. In the end, that didn't happen. Um, massive police presence and security around the Bella Centre meant it was never really very likely to happen. The other part of the plan was that delegates from inside were going to come out and join them um, to form part of the assembly. Unfortunately, the delegates who did stand up and walk out were unable to get through the police line to join them, so there was a lot of disappointment about that. Everybody, let's go! Let's go! Let's go! Let's go. Take back the talks! The industrialized countries of the North, they should acknowledge their historical responsibility for having emitted and accumulated an excessive amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. The Danish police, are, you know, they tend to be padded out with massive amounts of riot gear. They look like American footballers and Danes are tall anyway, so they're really pretty enormous and quite terrifying. And you've got your, your, your occasional officer with its, their waistcoat with little tear gas pellets stuck in all the pockets in case it all gets a bit out of hand. Occasionally, some of the demonstrators outside the centre would attempt to push through and get closer to the fence, at which point quite often there would be a bit of a fracas Police were using pretty brutal methods to keep them back. There was a lot of pepper spray being used, a lot of demonstrators walking around the area with streaming eyes, red eyes, and a lot of pain and shaken and very upset. Um, there were also a lot of um, batons coming down on shoulders and um, batons being pushed into throats in order to move them back from the police line. They have been using pepper spray and they have been beating people up both from the outside and the inside. What I find though disappointing right now is is just sort of how the police have handled the, the protest. That's, you know, a, a little bit shocking, actually a lot shocking. <laughs> Definitely one of the absolute highlights of the day was the moment when suddenly out of the crowd broke a little column of people charging down the road and under cover of the crowd they'd inflated about seven or eight lilos and tied them together with ropes to make a makeshift bridge. Um, dogs were brought in, riot police were brought in, there were about 40 police there before anyone had got even halfway across the stream. And the activists, incredibly brave three activists, <laughs> mad boys who climbed across, climbed up the other side and were arrested instantly.
And there's full coverage of the Copenhagen Summit today at guardian.co.uk slash environment. Also on The Guardian's website... I'm Sarah Phillips from G2, The Guardian's daily features section. In today's issue online, Harriet Sherwood visits Gaza a year on from the 23-day war to meet children who survived the attacks. Columnist Deborah Orr writes about her experiences of dealing with burglars, and Emma Nassana takes a dance class to prepare for the Christmas party season. All this and more at guardian.co.uk forward slash g2. I'm John Dennis. Still to come in Guardian Daily, a free lunch in Trafalgar Square to highlight the problem of food waste. Two chickens for the price of a fiver at Tesco's and people eat the breasts, chuck them away and half the animals that have been bred in miserable conditions end up in landfill sites. But first, the controversy over interference by Prince Charles in the affairs of our democratically elected government is reignited today by a series of freedom of information requests made by The Guardian. Robert Booth's got the details. Well, what we wanted to do was to discover what Prince Charles has been talking to government ministers about in the last few years. And we were interested in this because um, we'd noticed that he was um, getting quite closely involved in, in major projects, the big architectural projects in London and we thought you know time to look again at what he's doing on a wider um, scale. What we found out was that Prince Charles has written directly to eight government uh, ministers in eight government departments over the last three years and those departments include some of the major ministries of state such as the Treasury, uh, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and the Department for Education. What we haven't been able to find out and what has been denied us is the uh, letters themselves or the subjects of those letters. We do however know the contents of letters written by the Prince's aides. That's right, Prince Charles has a, a, a number of uh, charities which he's actively involved with himself one of them of which is president is the prince's foundation for the built environment um, they did release uh, letters to ministers that were written by senior executives at uh, at that foundation and these are interesting because they show how politically aware um, the prince's aides are we know that Prince Charles has got wide-ranging interests in you know, political issues, whether it's farming or uh, the environment or climate change or you know, house building. Um, but what we see here is very soon after uh, Gordon Brown becomes Prime Minister, in fact only 24 hours after he becomes Prime Minister, one of Prince Charles's aides writes to Hazel Blears, who Brown had appointed as Communities Secretary. And one of Hazel Blears's big jobs was to champion Brown's big idea, which was eco-towns. Very quickly, the uh, prince's aides are onto this, and they write to her, inviting her to a seminar, and they tell her that this seminar will make the case for eco-towns to be built on the model of Poundbury, which is, of course, the Dorset village which Prince Charles had built in his own vision. And there are a number of cases like this um, where the foundation's executives lobby ministers. So um, there's a whole range of information there that does suggest that his aides certainly are very sharp and on the case with ministers and effectively so, because in many of these cases, the ministers come back to them and say, yes, we'll come and talk at your seminars, or yes, we'll put you on a consultative group, or yes, we've read your document and we think it's very interesting. So clearly, having the fleur-de-lis on the top of these charitable letters, uh, that's the heraldic emblem of Prince Charles, carries weight, and it all seems to be part of a, a, a single picture. Robert Booth. 
Well, they say there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, I'm in Trafalgar Square in central London, where passers-by are being treated to a free lunch of biblical proportions. It's a charity event called Feeding the 5,000, where we've got, uh, well, there's a huge amount of food here, isn't there? Can I talk to you? You, you you're involved in chopping up the, the vegetables for this, weren't you? Um, what's your name? Scarlett. And, and what, what organisation are you from, Scarlett? Well, I represent Worth and Low Impact Living Initiative, but I'm here as a volunteer today. And, and you were, um, tell us what, what, what your uh, role as entail because it sounds quite arduous <laughs> all i did yesterday was chop up coriander <laughs> and, and but this is not just a, a quick bunch from uh, from tesco's or whatever is it what, what how much coriander was there there were boxes and boxes of lovely juicy coriander there was nothing wrong with it at all thomasina meyer so your your restaurant's just around the corner there uh, in uh, covent garden uh, what, what are you doing here we're highlighting food waste and the huge amount that we chuck away every year um 600 pounds per family on average extraordinary amount of um, money to chuck away and uh, so we're giving away food giving away cooked meals and also bags of vegetables and I'll be cooking a very simple dish of, of stuff you might otherwise chuck away we are getting lots of food together and we're gonna put d- different ones of them into different bags and um, give them to people who don't have as much like have food and stuff Great. Well, good luck. Thank you very much for talking to me. I'm with uh, Tristram Stewart. Well, I mean, those children put it very well, didn't they, Tristram? Absolutely. I don't need to say any more. And this is the kind of thing that we're saying. We're talking common sense here. The answer to the great food waste problem, and it's a global problem, is really simple. And it simply means eating the food rather than chucking it away. Now, Tristram, Tristram Stewart, you wrote this book, Waste, and you kind of had the idea for this event. I mean, can you just sort of sum up uh, what's going on here today and what, what, the, what the aim of today's uh, Feeding of the 5,000 uh, is? So we've got enough food here to feed 5,000 people. All of that food would have been wasted mainly on farms and packers where producers have to comply with really stringent cosmetic standards laid down by the supermarkets and all of this stuff these apples they look perfectly good but they're just slightly too small we've got some oversized carrots that's all that's wrong with this this food it's perfectly good it's nutritious it's delicious we've produced it in this country and farmers that i've spoken to for the last few years tell me they're throwing away hundreds of thousands of tons of stuff leaving them to rot in the fields plowing them back into the land they've put the land they put the water they put the natural resources into growing the food and then it gets wasted. What would you like to see happen? Eating the food rather than wasting it. At the moment we're importing loads of food into this country and throwing away stuff that we're growing here. That doesn't make any sense. On the question of cosmetic standards, it's really simple. Supermarkets should stock fruit and vegetables in all shapes and all sizes. We all come in different shapes and sizes and we know that our fruit and vegetables grow that way too. That's part of nature. Why do we want to have them all looking the same? Wouldn't it be boring if we all looked the same? That's unnecessary. So that's one. I mean, that's waste on one level on one particular issue. But there's waste in our homes where we throw away 25% of the food that we buy. That's completely unnecessary. We need to buy less. We need to use everything that we buy. Hi, I'm from The Guardian. I'm just trying to find out uh, what, what people think about this. Are you, you're, you're queuing up for some free lunch here. Um, are you, what do you think? I'm looking at this food and there's nothing wrong with it. I just can't wait to get in there and to eat it. <laughs> I think it's absolutely wonderful. All this food that has been thrown away throughout the years is absolutely atrocious. And even more appalling is animals bred on factory farms by the million to feed people two for two chickens for the price of a fiver at Tesco's. And people eat the breasts, chuck them away. And half the animals that have been bred in miserable conditions end up in landfill sites.
I think it's a great idea to uh, make awareness of how much people waste. I was in town, so I thought, right, I'll come along and um, pick up a few veg and uh, also um, make people aware that um, we do waste too much of our own grown products. Well, there's just one thing for me to do now, and that's to tuck into a plate of food. I'm f quite fancy this vegetable curry. Oh, that is absolutely delicious. Now, back to Copenhagen, where Guardian columnist George Monbiot has managed to talk to the London Mayor, Boris Johnson. Hey, George. Hi, how are you doing? How are you? Thanks. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Very good. Look, the question I had was, uh, you, you made a pretty good show there, as usual. And you well, talked very kind talk, of you to say so, George. But at the same time, um, you are—you have abandoned this, or you're abandoning Ken's proposal Which for um, a gas guzzler um, enhanced congestion charge. Yeah, that would have made, as you were very well know, George, that would have made uh, a really infinitesimal difference to uh, both to CO2 and in, and to um, particulates. Uh, well, no, London. that's not true, Boris. I mean, you're talking true. about getting rid and of the the most polluting vehicles, the Range Rovers, the Porsches, and the rest of it, which which have a disproportionate well, impact. Considering, yes, there are not many of them, but each of them has a very high impact on I CO2. I know, I know. The impact is tiny. But what you're doing is your is, and what I think appeals to you, Grawniad types. What you love about it is really giving a kick to what you think of as excessive consumerism, excessive consumption, ostentation, wealth, posh people. But shouldn't we but be, no, no, wait, wait, wait. Shouldn't we be well, giving them a That's a kick? very interesting question. Should we be uh, attacking people uh, just for uh, having expensive possessions? No, just I'm for not, I'm not, I'm not producing certain. a massive carbon footprint well, way above well, what most people produce. Shouldn't well, we be doing that? I'm, you know, I, I think that it's much more profitable, as I, as I argue, uh, to encourage people to greatly to reduce their, their carbon emissions uh, with the sense that they, in so doing they can better themselves and better their lives. And you know, you know as well as I do, the big savings in London are to be made not with vehicular transport, though we are going to be going to have a revolution in London with electric vehicles, uh, but the, the big savings are to be made initially on uh, domestic and commercial and business properties. That's where we're launching a fantastic programme to, to retrofit. And, you know, rather than, um, you know, beating up on the banks and telling them how evil they are and they must get rid of their Porsches and all this sort of grawling out stuff, which I understand is what, 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 what you get off on. Because what, they, what, what there, there is in, in these programmes are huge financial returns. We did 42 buildings in the GLA group in London. Uh, in one year, we've been able to save £1 million in, in energy bills. Now that's a fantastic financial saving. 70% of London's CO2 comes yep. from these buildings. If we address that Sorry. problem, rather than dickering on about yeah. sort of, you know, the politics of politics... had nothing to do with the question I asked. I'm a very learned man. You will have read your Orwell. And you will know that Orwell said about, about Second World War rationing, that the lady in the fur coat stepping out of the smart car does more to destroy national morale than a whole squadron of Hitler's bomber planes. And if... If you struggling along on your bicycle, having I done everything you possibly no, okay. I, I go, I you, go very so, serenely. Sorry. I go very so, slowly. Okay. Uh, I, I obey if the laws one, of the road. If one uh, struggling along on one's bicycle, one's bicycle. Why are you struggling on your bicycle? Well, because there are not enough cycle lanes for a start in London. <laughs> anyway, on, you, you're doing on. one's utmost to cut one's mm. carbon emissions, and some plonker goes past in some massive great okay, range. I, I understand where you're coming from. You feel viscerally. I am unable to feel the same sort of hatred of 
of rich people that I know other people do. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I, I, it's there, not a hatred of rich. I understand people. hatred of these massive, disproportionate carbon emissions. I understand the emotion. All I'm saying is, I think there are more productive ways of reducing CO2 rather than getting wrapped up in a sort of class struggle rhetoric on people driving uh, Porsches. I drove an electric Porsche, and I think an electric Porsche presents you, George, with a very substantial ideological difficulty. Look, hey, look, now, are you in favour of electric? It's zero it's carbon. carbon, carbon, carbon. It's zero carbon. Well, it depends where the electricity comes from. Well, okay, if it's, if it's renewably sourced, then it's, zero, it's, it's sure, potentially it's zero carbon. Sourced. Now, hey, uh, what's your, what can I ask carbon, you? What is your, what is your attitude to a, to a zero carbon Porsche? Fine. No, no trouble you love at all. It? I'd drive one myself if I could afford it. Would you? Okay. I want a Porsche, says George Mon. I think we've got our headline. And you can watch a video of that encounter at guardian.co.uk slash environment. Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe with the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily with Andy Duckworth in Copenhagen. I'm John Dennis. Thank you for listening. Listener.